I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Oh, this is a good one, my friends. This is a really, really good one. I am so lucky I get such great people on this podcast. So thank you to everyone who is saying yes. And those yeses are leading to other yeses. And wow, I hope you all are enjoying this content. Please make sure that you're telling your friends, subscribing, rating, and reviewing if you are enjoying this podcast. So today, whoa, today I have Christiana Wolf. She is a former physician an internationally known mindfulness, MBSR, MSC, and Insight Vipassana meditation teacher. She is the author of Outsmart Your Pain and the co-author of A Clinician's Guide to Teaching Mindfulness. Dr. Wolf is the lead consultant and teacher trainer for the VA's U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs National Mindfulness Facilitator Training. Wouldn't even get to that. Just wait. She was trained as a Dharma and retreat teacher through Spirit Rock Meditation Center and the Insight Meditation Society under Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. She's originally from Berlin, Germany, and she's a senior teacher at Insight LA in Los Angeles, where she lives with her husband and their three teenagers. This episode is so exciting to me. I, as you, as I say right away, I met Christiana, or I was introduced to her through my husband, Timo, who comes back from his retreats and teachings. And he was recently assisting her with just feeling so inspired. And we actually worked with Christiana's methods when my husband had chronic back pain. So this is very personal to us. And I really, and to anyone, anyone out there who is dealing with pain, has ever dealt with pain, has a friend or relative or partner who is dealing, especially with chronic pain, you want to listen to this. This will help you to shift your relationship to pain. We have very specific things you can do to help with the way that you see and experience pain in this episode. But that's not all. We also go way back with Christiana to Berlin. We talk about her experience as a doctor, her experience birthing a child in Berlin and then here in the U.S. and those differences and different kinds of pain, like birthing pain, 
versus acute pain and chronic pain. What is transformational pain? Well, you're going to learn about it today and how to work with your pain, how to work with mindfulness, how to work with compassion. It's pretty wonderful. I hope you'll be as inspired as I was and remain and that you'll grab Christiana's book. Again, it's called Outsmart Your Pain and you'll check out her website, christianawolf.com. And of course, all this will be in the show notes. I was really grateful for this conversation. Here we go. There we go. (laughs) Thank you, Christiana. Again, thank you so much for making this time, not knowing me, but knowing my husband. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And he made me very familiar with your work and Mm -hmm. especially your, your work on pain and your background with Insight LA. And I mean, there's a lot to to dig into. And a lot of times I jump right in on subject matter, but I thought, you know, your story is so interesting. (laughs) The fact that you came from this medical doctor background. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you might just share a little bit about like your past life. My past life. (laughs) Basically how I ended up here. Yeah. If I look at it, it's still often really puzzling to me that I, out of all people, would end up like very, very far away from a home that I really loved and a profession that I really loved and being now in a position where I have a new home and I love my what I'm doing now professionally. But I decided or it was very clear that I would become a physician by the age of 15. And very clear, just like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I was, I'm very goal-oriented in the high-achieving parts. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And But I also was, I think, a, really a seeker and a searcher my entire life. And so I was looking really for a spiritual path or like meaning of life as a teenager, also around that time when I decided to become a physician. And what I encountered back in like quite rural Germany just wasn't meeting my needs. And so I started just reading around different religions, different options. And what I, what I read was about Buddhism was not, I was not happy with that. It was basically life is suffering. And I was like, no, (laughs) as a teenager, I mean, I understand that there was a lot of suffering in life and I definitely experienced some of that, but it didn't really, that didn't sound appealing to me. And then I encountered practicing or a practicing Buddhist actually around the time I finished high school. And that really set me on the path and really through their or his in that case, and then some of his friends, how they were meeting life. And that was just something I was very clear, like as an 18 year old, like, wow, I need to pay attention to this. And then it took me, I mean, I got into medical school and pursued that. And I also practiced, started practicing meditation. And in the beginning, really thought like, what am I doing? (laughs) Nothing's happening. But I knew it was like a bigger context or it was a bigger setting, a bigger philosophy. And I pursued that. And then, so 
fast forward, I became an OBGYN. I was like quite successful, like working in a university hospital in Berlin and getting into research and got married. And we had our first baby. And my husband, who was not a physician, he his dream was always to uh, work in the U.S., at least to try it for like a year or so. And so because the maternity leave laws in Germany are so great, I could take work off while actually up to three years. It's not paid, but like it's like you're, they keep your job, which is fantastic. And we decided to go to Los Angeles for a year where my husband got a job offered. And I was really lost, Laura. I was really lost. I was new mom, had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> missed my job didn't have any friends there. And LA is a really weird, strange city. Um, and my only uh, request to my husband uh, was about like, going to LA where I was not interested in going, was I need a, I need a practice group there. I need a sangha because I know my practice falls apart when I don't have a practice community. And Can I stop you there for a minute? You've already shared like so much good stuff. <laughs> so a lot of questions are bubbling in my head. So don't forget wh where we left off. Of course, yeah. There's a lot I want to dig into already about the things you said. The, the first questions that are coming to my mind are around, um, you were at a very famous hospital, actually, from what I understand in Germany, the, the Charité, right? Yeah, yes, correct. And I'm just wondering, being in the birth world it's another topic and uh oh my god don't get me started okay <laughs> <laughs> because you know this is a beyond trauma and i want to dig into and we can do a little now i have something scheduled to really do that topic but you know if, if there was some trauma that you saw in that space and also just around your thoughts around the medical model versus some of these you had this medical model you were working in as a doctor. At the same time, you're working with a kind of a very different model, spiritual model, Buddhist model, and how those things are kind of working together for you and what you're seeing in the hospital. And then we have to also talk about <laughs> moving to the U.S. and the different safety net that's here as far as insurance and pay to leave. And <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And what does that do to people? To the psyche. Yes. And to the yes. psyche, mental health, honestly. Yeah. So one thing that I know, I mean, like, so we, interesting thing is, so I had my, our first daughter in our hospital and with my favorite midwife and with my favorite attendant as a backup. In Germany, the model really is if you have a normal pregnancy, basically the physician has no business with you because that has nothing to do with illness. Yeah. And so in a midwife will deliver your baby, not a physician, because that's what they're trained to do. And what they do actually have, and this is like really important, they have time which a physician doesn't. And so and I had it in the hospital, in our hospital, because we actually, in our hospital in Berlin, I was too skittish for home birth personally. I know like a lot of people really like where like birthing homes and like where people can just go where there are no physicians and just midwives. And a lot of people love that. 
But of course, as an OBGYN, I have seen things go wrong where nobody thought things could go wrong. So I was just like, just like, oh, no, let me just go to the hospital, have my baby there, but really just with a midwife. And then interestingly enough, I was then here in the US after we moved here and then we decided to have a second baby. And then so I had my second, my son here in, in the US. I learned that, oh, there are no midwives in the hospital where the gynecologist that I was seeing like for prenatal stuff was working. And she said, no, I'll come and deliver your baby. And I thought, that's kind of strange. I, so who's doing like the support like, for the many, 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 many hours? Like, I mean, birth, that birth itself is just like catching a baby. That's very brief, right? Compared to how long it takes actually from the beginning of labor. And so what I realized is they have nurses who kind of hit or miss kind of preparing the women here for the birth, which the doctor will deliver the baby. And their main interest very often is to have, I mean, have it as easy as possible and to have the woman ready by the time the doctor has time. So it just, just doesn't work. It just doesn't work, right? Because birth is a natural process, undergoes its own timeline. Like we like say, like friend of mine, Nancy Bardeke, who developed a class for mindfulness class for, for pregnant couples. She says like, it's like birth is on horticultural time, like a garden. Yeah. So you can't hurry that. Or if you start hurrying the birth process, you end up with more complications. And data shows that. So anyways, I was very, very disappointed and really, I mean, traumatized might be too strong a word, but I had no idea that that would be that way. And especially because I know it being quite differently in Germany. Yeah. I wonder if you were already had started any work at looking at pain as pain is there in labor, or if that would come later. You know, actually, uh, my connection with pain was so my passion as an OBGYN was not in the delivery room, but my passion really was for whatever reason uh, with cancer patients. And in Germany, I mean, here in the US, the surgeons do breast cancer treatments, then gynecologists do gynecological cancers, but in Germany, gynecologists or oncological gynecologists do gynecological cancers and breast cancer treatment. And so that was what I was really passionate about, what I trained in. And that, of course, very obviously has to do a lot with pain, with a different kind of pain. Yeah. So if we're working with pain in labor, this is like, this is a healthy pain. Right. So and there's, there's lots to say, and then I'm happy to do a whole episode on like labor pain, which is a healthy, a transformational pain, if you will. Yeah. So you're being transformed into a mother when you're going through that process. And you end up, I mean, most of the time, of course, like end up with a baby, which is amazing, right? Which gives you a very different motivation to go through that pain. If you have cancer, that's a very different story. Yes, very unwelcomed, can really cause great harm to your body and eventually kill you. And so that is a very complex matter of 
so what is going on in the body and then coming to like the role of mindfulness is like in how we relating to what is going on and how we relating in a way that is the most skillful, the least harm causing moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that clarification. I, I guess there are a lot of different kinds of pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe you want to separate some of them out for us. Yeah, so that's actually, it's a helpful way to look at it. So one way to look at it is to see, like, is this a transformational pain? Or is that a pain that might point to that there might be danger to the body? Yeah, so if we're thinking about, and a lot of people actually don't know that, is they think we have pain receptors in the body. We don't. We have, we call them, like a lot of people have heard the term nociceptors, and they think that's pain receptors, but noci actually means danger, doesn't mean pain. And what that means, means from the periphery, we get information into our brain that alerts the brain to basically, like we say, like pain is the body's way to tell the brain, pay attention. Uh -huh, especially as mindfulness teachers, right? So, hey, pay attention. What it means is there could be danger here. Please brain evaluate what's going on. And also what a lot of people don't know is that because they think like often like we have this, like people have pain and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, we can't find anything. And then they say, why don't you go see a pain psychologist? And what the person in pain hears is like, oh, I'm making that up or the doctor think it's all in my head, which is super painful, yes, to kind of feel that way. The ironic thing is that all pain is made in the brain. <laughs> yeah, because the brain, so the body basically just gives information to the brain, and then the body makes the interpretation. And that works really well for, and then coming back to, so how can we separate different kinds of pain? The way the body computes acute pain is very different from chronic pain. Yeah, so with acute pain, we like there's, a, for example, like a clear correlation between the amount of pain that we're in and the tissue damage. So if we have a little, kind of a little injury, we have a little pain. If there's a bigger injury, we have a lot of pain. Very clear, yeah? And this is usually how we think about pain. We feel that if there's a lot of pain, there must be a lot of damage. And that is actually broken, that connection in chronic pain, which is really hard, yes, because we're so hardwired to think it hurts so bad, therefore there must be something really wrong. And that is not true. And we have a saying, so two sayings that can be helpful just to kind of bring a concept across. So first we say like acute pain is protective. Yeah, make sure like we're pay attention and if we can stop what's painful. And chronic pain is overprotective because the brain being this amazing organ that it is learns from previous pains. And since kind of it's the brain's role to keep us safe, it gets better and better or tries to get better and better at detecting pain. But unfortunately, that makes us end up with more pain, with chronic pain. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking about that and how 
the brain is protecting us, and but then our life is shrinking. So we're getting yes this chronic pain and the message that I must do less. Yes, because there's pain, and usually, yes. if we're interpreting that that it's the alarm pain, yes, then we would be doing the right thing by retreating. But in this sense, the brain is kind of is signaling with this pain potential of danger, but maybe that's because it remembers a past danger. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, so, and I can give an example of, I mean, a lot of people have suffered from lower back pain. So that's one of the most common pain that we have in the U.S. and I think worldwide. And so exactly what you're saying. So of course, we don't like pain. We try to avoid it. And we're confusing hurt with harm. So we think it hurts, therefore it must be, there must be harm, and I'm harming myself if I'm moving. And then she with lower back pain and a lot of like structural pain in the body, we do exactly, we move less. So then the muscles, they shrink. And then we can do less. Yeah. And then the support for the bones and the, the skeleton is less. And then, so it's more likely to hurt. Our brain anticipating the pain, yeah, so <laughs> we're moving less and less and we get weaker and weaker. And so that's really one of like a really important part of like, for example, for, for lower back pain is to really, and then this is where we're using mindfulness to see like, right, can you expand your range of movement by really sensing into that area that we call pain and see what is actually here in this moment, not what was here like maybe five weeks ago or something when my back went up. You know, what you're describing reminds me so much of hypervigilance that happens post-trauma. We talk about that the jumpiness, the looking around, every sound, and then usually what happens when we experience that hypervigilance and everything appears to be dangerous then the natural reaction is to retreat. It's, it's it's very similar. Very similar, very similar. And then often it is actually like, so not always, but pain can start through an accident, for example. And so like this, it, it's like this traumatic moment when it started. And so of course, our entire nervous system, when we have pain in the body is on high alert. Yeah, because like if you think about it, like from an evolutionary point of view, that is one of the core intentions of our whole system. Because if there's pain, that means there could be danger, that my life could be in danger, and we need to avoid it at all costs. Yeah, yeah. And then I imagine that there's a whole nother layer of stress then of like, I'm not doing the things I used to be doing, or I'm all those kind of thoughts start creeping in, or the shame, I should be able to fix this. Absolutely. So one thing that we see is so again, like in, in acute pain, it's more straightforward, like, okay, like whatever, I squeeze my finger, or cut my finger, there's hurt, I pay attention to this, right, I do what I need to do. And there might be, of course, there might be thoughts or feelings around this, like, oh, why was I so stupid? Why didn't I pay more attention or feeling whatever, a little bit angry about myself? So that is also often actually makes also acute pain worse. But with chronic pain, what we know is so the way in the brain, what is involved in chronic pain, there are a lot more areas involved. 
that and what are more involved are emotions, our thoughts. So basically, what are we believing? Beliefs are really important. Expectations may, uh, play a role. Memories play a role. And they're all rolled into our experience of the particular sensations in our body in that moment. And the it kind of ironic thing is, on top of that, that what we and we have data to show that like many people with chronic pain because it is so painful actually stop feeling or sensing actually the actual sensations in the present moment. And then what happens, and we can show that there are actually areas in the brain that shrink in people with chronic pain that have to do with interoception or like, so the sensations that I feel within my body. So that is shrinking, which is right. Makes sense. I don't want to feel it, but then what happens? So I stop feeling what is actually here. And then I leave it up to my brain to make an assumption about the pain. That's the kind of like turning off. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is the other end of trauma, really. We're either hypervigilant or we go hypovigilant. We disassociate. We turn off feeling. Yeah. And again, there's no shame in that at all. Like we're just describing a natural or an unobserved process. Yeah. And what we want with the mindfulness or what I want with the mindfulness and the compassion practice is to say, there's actually another way to be with this that can start to untangle some of this really complicated knot that we call chronic pain. Yeah, great. So if someone, you know, if folks are listening and they're they're dealing with chronic pain and They've gone to the doctors and tested the structural things, and that's not really led to anything. Where would you start them with this mindfulness approach? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that so many people have a really frustrating history with the medical system of just like, well, I've been to many doctors and they don't know what it is. And like all the tests came negative or sometimes tests are positive and then I get treated, but then my pain doesn't get any better. And so now I have this whole host of like diagnoses and I'm still in so much pain and so tired and exhausted. So that's actually quite common in that way. So I think what we know is, so there are definitely like a number of pain or chronic pains, I should say, where we have some data that shows that mindfulness is helpful in reducing that. But I really think that mindfulness and compassion practice, they help uh, help or can potentially help us or all of us with just managing our life in a different way, in a more awake and more in a kinder way. And that lowers our general stress levels, which then just, I mean, they're like, this is like another really important way how mindfulness and compassion help with chronic pain, less, or the more we're able to manage our, all the stressors in our life through these practices, the often the less pain we will be in. Yeah. Because a lot of people say like, oh yeah, stress is hugely influencing my pain levels. I'm I'm just wondering because mindfulness is such a, a used word now. Yeah. If you might help 
like just define it a little bit the way you talk about it. And I, I noticed you always couple it with the compassion, which is something I learned is very important from the Buddhist perspective. I learned from Chimo and I always do now. I never separate them. So maybe you can just talk about, you know, a little bit about the practices that you're using to work with the pain and yeah, where we might start with those. Yeah. Mindfulness. So one thing is that is often because it has become such a buzzword that like we throw it around with everything. I was yesterday at a dinner over at friends and somebody told me about what do they call it? Meditating. <laughs> and that's like basically mindful wine tasting. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Is <laughs> maybe it wasn't in the intention of like the Buddha <laughs> practicing mindful wine tasting. Well, of course, like the, I mean, uh, we can bring a mindful awareness to anything. Yeah. And it might be helpful. But so what it is, is really we're usually living our life a lot on autopilot. So which is like nothing wrong with autopilot. I'm very glad that I can drive my car pretty much on autopilot. I have to like, don't have to micromanage that anymore. So it's an automated part of it. But when on autopilot means that I'm going through the motions because I've done them many times before, I'm not really paying attention. And while I do that, my mind is usually busy with something else. Yeah. So like, uh, so let's say you do the dishes and we are not really focusing on doing the dishes, but you think about like something that happened at work or you're, I don't know, thinking about like a meeting that you have the next day. And that has an effect on how you feel in the present moment. Yeah? And which of course is true also when we have pain. So when the pain comes up, it's not just the pain in this moment, that we are thinking is the things of the past, right? So what I call the past pain story. So why do I have this? Like, did I make a mistake? Did the doctor make a mistake? Why hasn't this been figured out? And that makes me feel a particular way, which I feel right now, even though the past is over. And, or I might think like, I am really worried about will I be able to continue my job? I've had so many sick days or you said like earlier, like what might I be sad about because I can't do that anymore. Maybe I can't lift or hike in the same way that I used to. And so that makes me feel a particular way, which I'm also feeling in the present moment. And so mindfulness helps us to be actually in this moment. So if you're doing the dishes, can you feel the warm water, like the soap and you're scrubbing? And yeah, so really the sensations of that and just being fully that. And in an interesting way, that often feels relaxing, even though you might not like doing the dishes, <laughs> just being present. And when we do that with pain, so in a similar way, so mindfulness is being fully with what is in this present moment and becoming more aware aware of just like, oh, my mind is really restless, yeah? Or I'm really hooked into that story of like, the surgery didn't go right and I'm really angry at the surgeon, right? And but that is not here in this moment. So that is where mindfulness helps to what is actually here right now. And then the compassion is really, can I be kind with what is here? 
Because what is here, like when we're in pain, is painful. And right, so like kind of being hard with ourselves actually makes it worse. And so in that way, we're learning to hold ourselves, yes, and to relate what is here, and then also to relate with others in a in a in a often very different way. And I know there are ways of meditating on or focusing on this actual sensation mm-hmm. of the of the pains the pain sensation where one can really start to get more specific with this isn't just this word pain yes but it's a constellation of different feelings maybe temperatures yeah and yeah. maybe you could describe that is that is that a method that you use that is, yeah. And then, I mean, so for example, if we're just like circling back for a moment to the labor um, example. So again, like it is often very helpful if we don't even label those sensations as pain because of all the associations we have with pain. Like it's bad, I need to get rid of it. It's like it's harmful. Yeah. So like in that situation to say like, you can call it intense sensations. <laughs> Instead. And then you can, and then, and then that is true. Then, of course, for like, let's say, lower back pain or another pain that's in the body, to see like what is actually here in this moment. So, the location. And then, what are like, what are actually sensations? So, if you say, like, oh, my back is killing me, that is not a sensation, that is an interpretation. But it does, that kind of interpretation does something to how I feel about the pain. If there's something in me that is killing me, I don't want that. I don't want to be kind with that. And I don't want to have it. And I don't want to feel it. So it's really important how we're talking to ourselves. And so then to think, what actually is a sensation right now? And I know like in yoga, for example, like we often, um, yoga is not always pleasant. Yeah. So we do all this stretching and holding and it's hard and it hurts and but it, there's no harm. And yoga can actually be a wonderful training to explore intense sensations and notice our reactions to it in a safe way where we know we're not hurting, like we're not harming ourselves, but checking in with the sensations, right? And so coming back to like what you asked is like, we're breaking that down into, so is it dull? Is it sharp? Is it stagnant? Is it fluid? Is it burning? Is it pressure? Is it, right? So there are so many different ways of sensation in the body can feel. And, and that can be super helpful, super helpful to say like, oh, okay. And then really noticing it's it's usually changing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, they, they tend, when they're noted or named, sometimes <laughs> those sensations change. I can definitely yes. uh, yeah. say that from my own experience. I'm wondering if the intention one goes into, um, I know sometimes when, when we want to make if we're doing a practice like this, when we're trying to make the pain go away, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's not going to work. If instead we go in with just doing it, you know, without wanting a certain result. Yeah. Is yeah. that a and part that, of it? 
Oh, that is so hard. That is so, <laughs> so hard. hard. Just, of course, I want the pain to go away. And that is then, again, that's then the kindness and the compassion that says, of course, sweetheart, you want the pain to go away. Of course. So there's nothing wrong with that. But then if we're just allowing ourselves to be just like be a human being, of course, I don't want pain. Yeah. And and then to say like, but can I be? So one of the qualities actually of mindfulness, which I haven't mentioned, which is like really crucial is curiosity. Curiosity and in, in a in a like not in a nosy kind of way, but more like the way children are curious. Yeah, so really, like, what is this? Like, what, what, what yeah, so like, I want to learn about it. I want to know this. And this is a wonderful quality because, A, it, we're, we're turning towards the experience and we're turning towards the experience with openness and not like the set, oh, I already know what this is kind of thinking. And then we can actually, then the the sense, the kind of the kind of, I know I want this to go away, but let me be curious about it in this moment. And then one thing that I find super helpful is, so can we allow this thing, this pain to be here in this moment? Yeah. So a lot of people, especially with chronic pain, they say like, I can absolutely not accept this pain. I want this to go away. And that's totally fair. But the fact is, the pain is here right now. Yes? And people go like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, since the pain is already here right now, how about you give it permission for this moment to be here and to be curious about it? And that seems to be a helpful mental way to kind of not be like, because often people feel like, oh, if I accept the pain, that is kind of, it's... Um, giving up or I invite the pain to be here forever. It's actually not. And so what we're starting with is just like, can I give it permission to be here right now? Because it already is. Yeah. And that's, that seems to be like a very helpful start and also like, like a practice to keep coming back to. I'm wondering with the epidemic that we have going on right now with the addiction to opioids and, mm-hmm. um, have you found this this work useful? Um, do you imagine that it could be for helping? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, and here's a very interesting research study, which recently came out out of UC San Diego, actually, where there's a um, Fidel Zaidan. He is um, a pain and mindfulness researcher at UC San Diego. So if people are interested and they can look that up or we can put a link into the show notes for this. And he was interested in if mindfulness mediated pain work has the same or is working through the opioid system in the body or through something else. Yeah. So like, for example, acupuncture, I think also yoga, actually, and some other forms of progressive muscle relaxation. So the way that they mediate pain in the body is through our internal opioid system. And you can, if you give a drug that blocks those opioid receptors in the body, those methods are, they lose their their effect. And very interesting, just like to, to think about it in that way. And then, so he did that then, and this was not chronic pain, this was acute pain. And like, they have all these like mean methods to 
um, treat usually students who get a little bit of money for that, right? I teach them how to meditate, use mindfulness. And then what they do is, I think they, they I don't know, they, they produce some pain like through applying like heat or something to like the calf. And what they found is, so first of all, they found that mindfulness was really helpful. And what they also found is that mindfulness is not mediated through the opioid system. But mindfulness, and they did also brain scans on these people, mindfulness is working through an uncoupling in the thalamic region in the brain. So that means like like in, in lay terms, we call it, it's like we're decoupling or decentering from I am in pain there is pain here, which again, that, that sounds a little bit like I'm just playing with words, but those are actually really crucial because if I think I am in pain compared to there is a sensation of pain here in this moment, that seems to make a huge difference to how the our brain is responding to those sensations that are coming in. And so super fascinating. And, and the good news, so just to kind of to finish that study and why I think it's so relevant is, so we can use pain medication if, there, if it is helpful. And we know that pain medication actually is not helpful in a lot of pain syndromes or they're just, they have a lot of side effects and they're really numbing people out. And we can use mindfulness in addition to that. So it's not an in, in either or. So they work on different, they support different levels. That's great. And I will definitely link that study. Maybe you can help me to do that. I'm sure yeah. people would love to to delve deeper into that. I guess one more big question about pain, and then maybe we'll circle a little bit back to your story. But I was wondering about emotions and pain. If you had something to say about that connection, I'm thinking about and I'm thinking about repressed emotions and how they might live in my body. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm wondering if a couple of things around that, I guess, around meditation and mindfulness, but also if there are other practices for releasing big emotions. <laughs> I'm thinking of, you know, hitting on a pillow or <laughs> or just just anything that's coming up for you around around that connection, you know, pent up emotions and pain. Yeah. It is interesting and people who have been, mostly people who have been in pain for a while and especially back pain, they're they're very familiar with John Sarno's work. And a lot of people, he's like a really like a pain, especially back pain guru. And his idea really was that pain or back pain is pent up anger. There's even like a documentary on that and it's quite fascinating. And I don't think it's like, I mean, like nothing is true for everything, but a lot of people, I actually know people personally who really have been helped through that approach. So, and what is very interesting. So first of all, of course we have emotions and we have emotions around the sensations that we're having. So that has less to do with like pinned up emotions or could basically the pain in the body be caused by pent up emotions, which I think, yes, they can. But I just want to say something about if we're in pain or if we had an injury, like there, we've had that for a while, there are always emotions uh, involved. And that makes a lot of sense. So like, for example, 
because it depends on how we are relating to the sensations. And we touched a little bit on that earlier, but just think about, let's imagine that you get a tattoo. Yeah. And a tattoo in an area of the body that is sensitive. So that hurts a lot. And, but you want to have that tattoo and it means a lot to you. So you have these really painful sensations and what would be your emotions around that? Yeah. So it's often it's excitement or like, I really embrace this pain or right. This is worth it. Yeah. So then imagine to have the same very painful sensations in that area of the body. And you're not sure why that is there. And how would you feel about that? Probably would get really, really concerned, really anxious. Yeah. Or let's imagine somebody does that to you without your consent. You would get really angry. So the point being, so the same sensations, depending on the context, elicit very different emotions. Yeah, that and is then emotions, <laughs> yeah, And of course, the more we hate this, we don't want this, we resist it, the more it hurts. And I think just that with that example, I hope that is helpful to say like, yeah, I mean, the way, again, like this is like a core tenet of mindfulness. It's not so much about the experience, but how are we relating to it in this moment? What's really bubbling up for me is is the autonomy, like the choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Again, that goes back to my work in trauma so much. Right. Mm-hmm. But what you mentioned, and, and then what ties in with that as well is like the framing. You yes. know, how yes. you're framing it. Like this is yes. a pain that I'm gonna work through or or a physical or even like you said, not calling it pain, but this is a strong sensation and just the way that we frame it and whether we whether we kind of take ownership or with it, or we're pushing it away. But then just to also come back to your question about like penned up emotion. So what comes to mind for me is then is the, and people might be familiar with that, are the ACE, the ACE score. So the adverse childhood experience score and the relationship to chronic pain and illness later in life. Like, are your listeners familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. So basically what we know is that the more, basically the the more trauma there was in childhood, the more likely we are to suffer from chronic pain and especially kind of unexplicable pain later in life and also chronic illness. Yeah. And that is just something Again, like we can get very angry and very frustrated around it as if it wasn't hard enough what we had to go through as children. And now it's just like kind of messes up our life later on. Or we can just say like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And what I actually need to do is like, I don't need more surgery or I don't need more medications or like, I'm, I'm of course, like if that is helpful, that's what I, we need to do. But I really need to do deep trauma work and somatic trauma work and just really dig into releasing some of that pent up energy in helpful and supportive and transformational ways. Yeah. Yeah. It might be a sign that the, the body is holding on to something that might not even be in the conscious memory. Of course, very often. Yeah. Or like, I mean, as we're learning more about transgenerational trauma is like what we are holding might not even be ours, but like we have been loyally 
faithfully carrying for all these, like our entire life. So I definitely carry some of that being German. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always encouraging folks to look into that kind of, you know, understand that history. We do a a whole section on epigenetics and Mm -hmm. the trauma training that we do for yoga Mm -hmm. teachers, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which can be helpful for that. There was something that came up for me, but it flashed away. So maybe it'll <laughs> maybe it'll come up before the end or I'll be calling you later. But I'm wondering, as we kind of head toward the end of our hour, just a little bit kind of circling back to the beginning where we started and mm-hmm. thinking about your your story and you know, we cut it off to get into all the pain. But I yeah, I would love to hear, you know, what happened to you. This is good because then the, the, the listeners have to stay to the end. Um, <laughs> to hear what 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 happened to you then being in in LA in a strange uh, city and strange yeah. country, yeah. how did you find your sangha? And maybe you can share a little bit about what sangha is and why that's so important to you, and and maybe how that's helped you. This is my selfish question: living with someone who's left their country and I know that sometimes <laughs> right. faces some deep sadness or kind of yeah, lostness yeah. around that. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I'm, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are people who are just like very happy to leave their home and leave their country. And, and of course, of course, I'm a privileged immigrant, like no question about that. And especially in LA, there are so many people like, especially like from Mexico, that's just like, well, that's like very, very different immigrant circumstances. But yeah, for me, it was actually a very long process. And it was a decision really year by year. Does it make sense? Are we going back? Are we staying here for another year? And what happened for me was really that, um, so Sangha means community. And in the Buddhist tradition, that's just a word for a practice community. So the people I meditate with, and I need a, um, I need a guide, I need a input about what I'm doing in my meditation, so I'm not getting lost. Because meditation, it's very interesting, it's like now we have all these meditation apps, and they're kind of people learn to meditate like as a DIY way. And that's, that's actually not what it was meant to, how we were meant to practice. We were meant to practice in community and learn from each other and support each other in with our all of our ups and downs in, in meditation and in life. And so, and for me, that was really crucial. And I found my teacher here, Trudy Goodman, who had just started a uh, insight meditation sitting group, practice group here in Los Angeles a few months before I joined. And then I really resonated very deeply with her. And then I became very involved in building the organization Inside LA really from its tiny beginnings back then to a really like very big and vibrant organization. And Trudy Goodman, actually, she suggested that I train as a secular mindfulness teacher, a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher, which I originally wasn't interested in because I was a Buddhist practitioner and a physician. <laughs> and she said, well, wouldn't that be helpful for your patients back in Germany when you go back? And I, I said, yeah, that would actually be really helpful. Because as a physician, of course, I couldn't teach these skills to my patients. And so I trained as an MBSR teacher. And then from there, it became very clear there's a huge demand for good teachers. There weren't that many teachers out there, and particularly teachers who are, have kind of, let's say, 
like a scientific street creds <laughs> who are not just like the hippies, right? So like, like there are some people who would never take a class from somebody who think is a hippie or just like a dropout or whatever. And so that, that was really helpful. And then, I mean, I really looked into whether I wanted to work as a physician in the U.S. And I did all my board exams again, which was crazy. So, but, and then I decided I would have had to do another residency. And at that point, I had three little children and the mindfulness work really took off. People loved the MBSR here in Los Angeles and the, our organization was growing. And I thought, this is so much more sane than working in the medic medical world. Yeah. And so we stayed. And but it was not this moment of like decision, okay, no, we're like never going back. It's just it was a long and tedious and often really painful process and really beautiful too, I have to say. Yeah. I think I, I can imagine that people are really drawn to you because that science background and mind and MBSR has that secular kind of framework. I'm sort of drawn to you because you have that. And then you have also, you talk about that you come from a Theravadan Thai forest lineage as well. And you talk about teacher transmissions in your bio. So do you, do you see yourself as riding the line or holding all of that? You know, it's like, I never like to be pinned down as one thing that's just like kind of my MO. When I never could just be in one niche ever. Like when I was doing research, I had a really hard time finding like one. I'd never wanted to just have one research project, which some of my colleagues thought was detrimental to my career. <laughs> and so it makes a lot of sense. But for me, it's really, I mean, they're all working so beautifully together and, and as you're saying, I mean, I didn't set out to be this way. And I definitely, I did not like, as, a, as I said, as a little girl saying like, oh, I want to be a Dharma teacher when I grow up or a meditation teacher. Definitely not. But I find, yeah, a lot of people find it helpful and they find me that I have uh, the, yeah, just the credibility of kind of also translating back and forth. And that's a thing because English, as I said, is not my first language, is I pay a lot of attention to the power of translation. And it helps me that I can translate actually some of these ancient wisdom traditions into something that makes sense to people today. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's, that is something very powerful. Being able to speak to people in the, in, in the right language for them. And I noticed also in your, your bio that even with all your, your meditation and mindfulness, you specifically note that you're running long distances and, and triathlons (laughs) and, um, that this is helping you raise your, your teens. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So there's, there's so many different practices that we can pull in I got from that. I I still like to do a little bit of a power workout to get out <laughs> some stuff as well. Yes. Being mm-hmm. a mom to a what do they call them? Well, she just turned four, but they call them three majors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The toddler years. Yeah. And it's it really like I was a runner like since my late twenties and, and I, like when my kids were really little, I did 
run very little because I was just so tired. It's just like, oh. <laughs> you ran a lot just around then. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a marathon like right there, an ultra marathon for that matter. And so, and I had just picked it back up because I enjoyed so much being out in nature and just being outside. So, and, and my body is like, is knock on wood supporting me very strongly. And I just, there's a lot of pleasure and enjoyment actually in, in running for me. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Like being outside is something that's, uh, I found very helpful for me these last years, especially. Christiana, your book is called Outsmart Your Pain. Everyone should get it. Where else can people find you and meet you? And is there anything else that you want to let people know about your work? Yeah, I mean, you? You, like all of that information is on my website. Um, so christianawolf.com. And I also just want to let people know because people often say, oh, do you have a class on pain? And yes, I teach, usually teach at least a couple of pain classes per year. But I also have through the organization Mindful, mindful.org, I have a on-demand class, like pre-recorded on uh, chronic pain, which again I can I can really recommend. And in addition to, if people want more than what is in the book, and the book really is looking at different aspects of um, of chronic pain and how we can tackle them and work with them. And they also there's a, uh, each chapter has a guided meditation which people can access so they can listen to the guided meditations with my voice. Oh, I think people are going to really like that and benefit from that. And maybe the book and the on-demand course together, <laughs> they're waiting for you, for you live. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else that, that I should have asked you? No, that was like, that was quite a broad, <laughs> broad journey. Yeah. 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 Well, I really, really appreciate you making the time and appreciate the positive influence you've had on my family, on my husband, and <laughs> on me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's such a joy to teach with Timo. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me. And I hope we'll, we'll, I'm positive we will meet in person at some point, Laura. <laughs> I sure hope so. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.